Fillon can only address economic crisis and improve household resilience when also addressing conflict, climate change and food insecurity. We need a proper understanding of how these global challenges interact with each other. If not, the solution for one may prove ineffective because of failure to address associated problems. One thing I would say is that communities are very aware of the issue of climate change and, and they're looking for answers from their local governments. And, and if you can show some solutions, some short-term solutions that will provide coverage in the short term, you can buy yourself the time for, for longer-term investments to bear fruit. Our research involving many CG centers working in diverse landscapes finds that building inclusivity into landscape governance institutions or through other collective action mechanisms have many positive attributes beyond the, the goal of fairness. For example, these also build trust and they build technical competencies in managing resources that help foster better ad adaptation to climate change. That capacity strengthening element of adaptation is, is sometimes overlooked as it's so important. It is the actual foundation of, for any adaptation activities to be successful. There are certainly also opportunities within countries to create that sort of the, the foundation for policy coherence and effective adaptation. Climate change policies are not an academic or political exercise, but a necessity to actually address climate change and its consequences. So it is time for action that is not new. At the same time, we also still have to admit that we are still in a learning process. We need to be open to learn from different projects, from different places, different regions, from different organizations, and also maybe from different type of actors. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whatever your time zone is. Um, my name is Ali Abu Saba. I'm the regional director for the One CGIAR um, in the uh, Central and West Asia and North Africa region. And I'm also the ICARDA director uh, general. I wanted to thank uh, you all for uh, joining us in this very important uh, webinar uh, series and uh, in particular the organizers for having taken the initiative to put this thing together and for allowing me the opportunity to address you this morning with a few words as your host. Uh, just before we get into the business of the day, I think it's important to recall why we are here uh, today and what brings us uh, together. The whole question of the drylands and uh, uh, the climate change and how it affects this part of the world and the implications, uh, both in terms of the food security, availability of water, uh, issues of livelihood, um, uh, and of course, uh, you know, how all of this comes into play and affects uh, security and stability in the region. Just by way of, uh, uh, you know, uh, background, you're all aware that, uh, that the global drylands support almost 3.8 billion people, out of which 2.6 billion live in the non-tropical uh, drylands. And the drylands is considered to be the hardest hit uh, with the impacts of climate change and uh, climate uh, variability. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, uh, quite densely populated and a high percentage of those people are actually unemployed youth with limited hope and opportunities. And with the ongoing conflict in some of the countries with the exponential population growth, the outward migration, land degradation and water scarcity exacerbated by the climate change, the drylands uh, can and will suffer from conflict and instability. Of course, if left uh, unchecked. Now, uh, globally, uh, temperatures are rising. And I think, uh, you know, everyone you know, that is in Glasgow uh, over the next few days are talking about what will be the best uh, uh, course of action, the need to scale up response in countries to come together globally. But this particular region, in the MENA region, there are uh, credible reports that suggest that this is going towards 
a four degree uh, warmer scenario, which would make things much worse uh, for the people in the region. And of course, it will affect the land uh, and the agrobiodiversity as well as the livelihoods uh, of the people. So it's not all uh, bad news. It's also important to recognize that the MENA region offers vast uh, agricultural potential and opportunities in agrobiodiversity uh, and genetic resources of plants and livestock alike. A large and ready workforce and agricultural institutions keen to engage in innovations and new approaches. So that is, you know, by itself is a very important asset uh, to build on and, and, and to exploit. As far as the CGIR itself uh, is concerned, uh, you know, we aim to work with such institutions, with farmers, uh, associations, uh, with the private sector and the global agriculture experts to transform uh, food systems in a manner that addresses the adaptability and resilience under climate crisis, including a wide range of opportunities within the crop livestock tree and fish systems. We're also seeing emerging opportunities to address specific challenges to peace and stability, such as providing unconventional approaches to water management, employment opportunities for youth and women, improve market uh, change for better incomes and rehabilitation of seed and food systems in post-conflict countries. In fact, the CG can play an important role in promoting preemptive avo avoidance of instability through approaches to better water use and management, restoring and protecting productive lands, uh, which by itself can offer equitable opportunities for better livelihoods. Our uh, CGIAR uh, work, and that's a very important point to recognize, uh, informs national and regional policymakers for favorable uh, and market-led policies and decisions that are science-based evidence, but can also act and enact change and nourish new approaches and innovations. And we put 50 years uh, of, of achievements and innovations plus a very refreshed one CGIAR that is coming together in ways that has never been done before to be able to deal with the problems of the future in a manner that rises up to the magnitude of the challenge. So without further ado, I very much look forward to the discussion that will continue during this webinar and I wish you all a very productive and successful conversation. Thank you very much. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I am the editor of UN Dispatch and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. And today's conversation is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. Ali Abu Saba did a great job of framing this conversation, and I now have the honor of moderating an excellent panel whom I will now introduce. Sandy Ruxtol is Special Advisor and Senior Researcher at the International Water Management Institute with CGIAR. Welcome. Gidon Bromberg is Israel Director, EcoPeace Middle East. Welcome. Hello. And Anders Jakerskog is a Senior Water Resources Management Specialist with the World Bank. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So I will have a series of questions for the panelists before opening it up to the audience. To ask a question, please simply leave your question in the comment field of wherever you are watching the live stream, and we will get to them shortly. Uh, for now, to kick things off, I have a broad question for each of you that I'd like to, you to take a minute to answer. And Anders, we'll start with you. How do you see your work around land, water, and food systems contributing to peace building in the MENA region? Okay, thank you very much, uh, Mark. It's, it's a pleasure to be on, on, on the show. Um, and I think just briefly, um, the World Bank is, of course, working in all of the countries in uh, the MENA region. We work on water, we work on land, agriculture. Um, uh, and I think 
in short, um, we see that the, the social contract, if you like, um, in the region um, it's, it's, has several components, including, including work on water, work on, on agriculture, and food, and those are uh, underpinning um, the, the sort of the peace and stability uh, in uh, countries. And if you don't uh, don't work with them, um, you run the risk of of, uh, uh, of having increased fragility um, in the region. So, so through addressing these and through addressing uh, those challenges that those bring, and responding to the countries' uh, requests for support. Uh, we do we do work in all of these uh, sectors, thereby contributing to uh, to peace uh, in the region. Uh, thank you. And Guidon, same question to you. How do you see your work around land, water, and food systems contributing to peace in the Middle East and North Africa? Well, firstly, um, thank you uh, for the invitation. Um, what's unique about EcoPeace is that we're a regional organization. Um, as our name suggests, we're both environment and peace. In fact, um, uh, we are an organization that leads what's called environmental peace building. I'm the Israeli director of the organization, but I work hand in hand with my Palestinian director in, in Ramallah, my Jordanian director um, uh, you know, in Amman. Um, we're a team of 60 staff, uh, Israeli, Palestinian, Jordanian together, um, trying to bring home the message that we claim to really love the land, but we haven't done a good job. And of course, the conflict has led to even further demise. And therefore, we're going to have to do better. And in order to do better, to manage our, uh, uh, particularly our water resources more sustainably and more fairly, we'll contribute to peace. So that's our message. Echo peace. Uh, thank you. And Sandra Ruxdal, same question to you. How do you see your work around land, water, and food systems contributing to peace in the region? And I, thank you very much for having me on today. Um, this is a fantastic group. I'm honored to be a part of it. Um, so in the CGIAR, we do research for development, right? We're aiming to inform policy, programming, and finance. And to put it simply, all our work must be conflict sensitive in order to support the achievement of the SDGs and to leave no one behind. Um, in MENA, the most water scarce region in the world, of course, and um, one where many locations are affected by fragility and violence, there's a clear need for humanitarian and development interventions to be simultaneously conflict and climate sensitive. So we know it's incumbent upon us as researchers to identify, to deconstruct, and to intervene upon climate and security issues through our work. And likewise, to ensure our work informs solutions that bridge climate and security risks and build resilience ac across the spectrum and at multiple scales. So I think with that mandate that we have, um, that's certainly how we intend to contribute to peace building in the region. So thank you. Thank you. That was a good first uh, lightning round to set up the rest of the conversation. Thank you all. Uh, and Anders, I'm going to turn back to you. Uh, what is the role of the World Bank in facilitating cooperation over shared water resources in the MENA region that can have potential co-benefits for climate-related development efforts? Thank you, Mark, for that for that question. And uh, and if you allow me, I'll, I'll start at the sort of the uh, the global level, the World Bank uh, is and have been engaged uh, over, for decades in uh, promoting transboundary water cooperation. And we do this uh, through a development lens. We are developing a development bank, um, supporting transboundary waters because we think it's crucial uh, to development. Unless countries get... Uh, uh, their water, the shared waters, um, whether it's rivers or aquifers, uh, uh, collectively managed and, and agree on the basics of that, um, development is is held back and hampered. Uh, so that's sort of the entry point where we where we come in. Um, and what we often do is that we come in um, and support technical cooperation uh, on uh, a river, um, a, a, a an aquifer. And that could relate to, to dam safety, to water quality, to flood and drought information, uh, allowing uh, information to uh, f 
flow freely, if you allow me to use that phrase, uh, between the countries. Because if it does, uh, then countries would be better placed to um, to to address and and deal with the challenges that that arise at the national level uh, as an outcome of uh, of of the the, the water that. That uh, that comes from another countries, and we also see this as something that that sort of underscores the interdependence between countries, uh, and regional cooperation and integration is important um, uh, in this in this regard because we also believe that um, if you collaborate, um, as 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 Gidon is is uh, promoting um, in um, in the Jordan Basin uh, and between Israel, uh, Jordan, and the, and the, and the Palestinian uh, Authority. Um, then the outcomes can be, become more than than if you just take unilateral approaches. So I think that's important to to recognize. And then uh, we also, uh, when we enter into uh, collaboration and support support of countries wanting to advance their transboundary agenda, we do that with a long term view. Uh, we've been engaged in the Nile Basin, um, supporting the Nile Basin Initiative uh, for. Uh, around 20 years. Um, and um, while there are challenges there now, uh, which we recognize, uh, we can also see a positive trajectory if you look back uh, over the last 20 years. Mm. Uh, there is a lot more information sharing between the countries. Um, the availability of information and knowledge around the shared resource is 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 much better. And this will become even more important uh, as climate change which is already upon us, but it will become even more important as countries try to address that collectively. Uh, and that, that's how I think we that can contribute to countries addressing this challenge. Uh, thank you, Anders. And uh, Gidon, I, I believe that Anders gave you an entry point to discuss your work in the Jordan Basin. Uh, so how is Ecopeace's work on water, environment, development, and peacebuilding in the Middle East contributing to economically sustainable and climate resilient peace? So, so let me give you the example of the Jordan River itself, uh, this, this iconic river that is holy to half of humanity, very much due to the conflict, has been turned, sadly, tragically, to little more than a sewerage canal, with 97% of its waters diverted, half by Israel, the other half by uh, Syria and Jordan. And instead of fresh water flowing down the river, we see a lot of sewerage, agricultural runoff, uh, saline waters, contributed by Israeli uh, Jordanian and Palestinian communities that live down the Jordan Valley. Um, so at Equipeace, um, uh, in order to try and help rehabilitate that river, we work in two ways. Half of our programming is bottom-up. Um, we literally bring uh, residents of the communities to come and see the demise of the river because the river is the border. We're in a conflict zone. There's limited access, there's military checkpoints, there's fences, uh, uh, the river's even mined. Um, so um, uh, to, to a large degree, the population hasn't really seen the extent of the demise. So it's really important that we bring young people, residents, uh, religious leaders um, uh, to understand how the demise of the river is impacting their livelihoods. Um, we then uh, undertake more, more top-down research activities. We prepared the first ever integrated master plan for the Jordan Valley. Um, and that, that master plan showed us how that if we work together fairly and sustainably, we can turn this uh, dire state of the river back to a clean, fast-flowing river that uh, uh, brings uh, 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 economic welfare to the three riparians, uh, Palestinians, Jordanians, and Israelis, move from an economy of poverty, which is very much associated with the demise of the river, to an economy of shared prosperity, from $4 billion annually to $73 billion annually, if we work together. And our efforts have brought results. We've, been, we've helped attract and I, I say help because many other organizations are here involved, to bring about $100 million worth of investments to build sewage treatment plants on the Palestinian side, on the Jordanian side, on the Israeli side, that started to take the sewage out of the river. 
We've seen changes in government policies where for the first time in some 50 years, fresh water has been released again down the River Jordan. Not enough, but an important precedent that shows us and shows the communities, Palestinian, Jordanian and Israeli, that there are benefits, that there are win-wins by working together. Uh, thank you. Uh, and Sandra, how might land, water, and food systems science integrate climate and conflict policies and programs in the Middle East and North Africa? And what might be some of the challenges? Um, this is a great question. Uh, in MENA, if humanitarian and development strategies don't consider water security, in my opinion, and this has already come up several times, then they're neither climate sensitive nor conflict sensitive. Really, water security is climate security, as we know. And perhaps nowhere in the world is this more clear than in the MENA region. So in order to build resilience in this climate crisis, in a region where the frequency and severity of drought will only become worse, and where water consumption surpasses sustainable levels of supply, it is absolutely necessary, in my view, that we need to take a systems approach when considering policies and investment. We need to understand the water systems that MENA communities and economies rely on. We need to consider how climate forecasts will impact these, and we need to plan for uncertainty. But as I said before, we need to be conflict sensitive along the way. So what does this mean? In my view, it means we need to do no harm. This means we need to consider how the development and humanitarian interventions that we inform could affect latent or active conflict. It means that we have to avoid the pitfalls of maladaptation, meaning investments in adaptation that could end up in contributing to more vulnerabilities and exposure to climate risk. It means that interventions uh, that we inform need to be intentionally designed to actively prevent and mitigate conflict. And it means um, that we need to inform and strategically support recovery after conflict and violence. Now, these three areas are not independent from each other. They're overlapping, and all of them do promote peace building in theory. Uh, but the challenge really for us is that to do any of this as water, land, and food system scientists, we need to collaborate closely with conflict experts and to be deliberately conflict sensitive. And furthermore, when being conflict sensitive and understanding conflict, we can't be confined to the notion of active conflict or war. This is something that we, there can sometimes be a tendency to do this. But in the case of the MENA region and globally, conflict and insecurity can be anywhere at any time. So we need to be mindful of that when we go into these uh, endeavors together. Uh, thank you. And I like your framing of water security is climate security. That leads really nicely into my next set of questions. Uh, Anders, to you, you recently co-authored a World Bank report on water migration and conflict in the Middle East and North Africa in view of climate change in the region. Uh, what are the lessons learned for policy actions to build peace? Thank you for that questions. Yes, here we have it. Um, this this uh, this volume really came out of a lot of discussions, uh, both internally in the, in the World Bank, but also looking at the sort of discourse going around um, uh, globally, if you like, uh, on on water and migration, recognizing um, the the need to understand more of. Uh, how how uh, water may be a trigger or not uh, for migration. So so what we did um, was to both look at the global level. So there's a two volume report, um, but also have where one of the volumes are focusing solely on on MENA. But to your question on what policy actions and recommendations could we uh, see coming out, or do we see come out of 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 this work? Um, there are there are a number of them, but let me highlight a few. What we see, uh, and looking at us uh, as a development bank and, and development actor, is that we need to be more present in uh, conflict settings. Um, we need to make sure that we are active in 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 places where conflict might be ongoing. Uh, a bit unlike what we have done in the past. And that's being recognized at, at various levels. Uh, and we need to partner also with other actors 
that may not be the traditional development actors. And I'm highlighting um, one uh, one uh, such actor, which are the humanitarian actors, and that could be you know the UNICEF, ICRC, and so on. So that we make sure that whatever we have been doing in terms of putting uh, systems and supporting systems uh, on, on, on water in, in place um, in some of these countries where you've seen conflict and migration, uh, to make sure that that's something that uh, when a conflict uh, happens, uh, the humanitarian actors can build upon. So we need to integrate and, and see how our, our approaches are more joined up uh, in terms of, of uh, how to take action on these issues. Um, and so that's a concrete uh, policy action. And that work is ongoing. We are uh, working with um, with UN agencies, for example, in, 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 in Yemen, uh, to make sure that people uh, have water and sanitation where they live uh, so that they don't necessarily need to move uh, and, and migrate uh, to other areas, either internally or become refugees um, externally. I think the report furthermore also highlights uh, the complexity and, and, and brings a bit of a nuance to the whole picture. You may have seen um, in um, newspaper reports uh, and also some research saying that um, the conflict in, in Syria, for example, was an outcome of climate change, leaving um, people needing to move because they didn't have uh, enough, uh, enough water. But we like to say that it's more complex than that. One needs to look at the water system and the water management system and governance uh, holistically and looking at it historically as well to see uh, what places, what things were put in place or perhaps not put in place um, in order to address the water challenges that that. So I think that's those are some of the key conclusions and, and policy actions that we are suggesting. Uh, thank you. Uh, and to Guidon, in your experience, do efforts to promote peace in fragile settings in the MENA region address climate-related insecurities around livelihoods, food, and water? And what could be the implications of not addressing these issues? So I think overall, uh, there's insufficient attention given to uh, how the climate crisis can further aggregate, aggravate uh, the conflict and, and lead to sort of threat multipliers, which is, which is the common term, um, that, that uh, you know, peace building is, uh, is um, seen about you know, a conflict resolution uh, on narratives, on, uh, on land issues, um, but with, with failing to, to really integrate the fact that it's not status quo, that if we, if we don't respond to the climate crisis, the type of uh, uh, drivers of conflict, such as water insecurity, are only going to get um, worse and worse. That's going to lead to even more conflict. Um, at Equipeace, for that reason, we launched a report uh, last year, uh, building on over two decades of our work, calling for a green-blue deal for the Middle East. And that's what the report is completely focused on. It's focused on... Um, highlighting that the climate crisis can actually be an entry point to promote peace. Um, it can uh, alert people that the climate crisis, of course, doesn't impact one country, but it impacts the region as a whole. And when we look at the impacts uh, that, that we've already seen in the region, the rest of the world is talking about you know, uh, being fearful of a one-and-a-half-degree increase in temperatures. Well, since the 1950s in the Eastern Mediterranean, we've already experienced a two-degree increase in temperature. The Mediterranean Sea this summer rose to 32 degrees Celsius, two degrees higher than ever recorded. So the implications of climate change are real and relevant right now. And if we fail to deal with the climate crisis and, and fail to implement some of the measures that hopefully I can expand uh, later that, that, that deal with um, implementing a green-blue deal inspired by um, uh, the European uh, Green Deal for the European continent in the MENA region, then, then we're really not going to be able to uh, uh, meet the challenges needed. And, you know, uh, quite tragically, we'll see more and more conflict um, uh, uh, developing in our part of an already highly troubled uh, part of the world. 
thank you. Uh, and to Sandra, can you share any success stories of interventions from the region that can be used as guidelines of good practice for enhancing conflict-sensitive programs with the aim to contribute to longer-term peace building? Uh, on the other hand, do you have any cautionary examples of interventions that can serve as key lessons? Thanks, Mark. Um, I kind of wish that Gidan could answer this question because some of the great work that Ecopeace uh, ha has done in the Good Water Neighbors Project, but perhaps that's for later. In my experience, and I do want to point out, again, following on to what uh, Anders and Gidan both said um, uh, about the message of cooperation and peace building, we know that historically water has been a source of cooperation and that good water governance can be a means for building peace. And the goodwill around cooperation, whether it's from an irrigated field or all the way up to a river basin can be a means for building cooperation around other things. So while we know that climate forecasts indicate concern that the trajectory could change, we still need to be aware that we can leverage opportunities for cooperation over water. And I want us to be mindful of that. Um, as communities across the MENA region face the risk of more frequent and extreme drought, this is a obviously a major concern um, across all countries in the region. Um, integrated and inclusive and cooperative planning around drought could be especially critical for security and conflict prevention in my view. Um, uh, IMI is implementing a project um, in several countries in the region in Morocco, for example, is one of the countries um, where we're working, um, where newly developed drought monitoring tools use satellite data um, and these have been installed in the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries, and Rural Development, Water and Forests. And now um, these systems are being used in what I would term conflict prevention. Now we know that pastoralism is widespread in Morocco, um, but that uh, new uh, grazing lands, um, it, that pastoralists might be seeking new grazing lands, uh, which can lead to tension in communities. They're seeking new grazing lands as the climate changes and as the resources are depleted. So uh, what the team is now working on um, with our Moroccan partners is to calibrate and validate the drought maps for pastoral use across all of Morocco. Now this will support enforcement of local laws on rangeland management. Um, and these drought maps, maps rather will, um, will uh, allow Moroccan authorities to forecast where drought will affect grazing lands countrywide, and to authorize herders to take their livestock into areas where vegetation is healthy. So drought early warning, drought impact, vulnerability mapping, and drought preparedness, to me, these are excellent examples of uh, conflict mitigation in the face of climate change. Uh, thank you. So we are about to go to our final round of questioning. Uh, however, before we get there, I do want to remind viewers that you can ask your question to the panelists simply by leaving a comment uh, wherever you are watching the live stream, and we'll get to those shortly. Uh, so for this last round of questions to each of you, it's, it's a similar question, a similar framing, but I'd ask you to answer in each of your own contexts and experience. So Anders, to you, having agreed on the importance of tackling the climate security nexus in the Middle East and North Africa, what will the World Bank do to address nexus-specific components and help guide climate policy and action? Okay, thank you very much, uh, Mark, for that question. Well, there is a lot that, that, that we could do and really taking stock of this uh, saying perhaps that uh, no sustainable development without peace and no peace without sustainable development building on that sort of notion and, and of course climate uh, security nexus is is, is as, as I see it uh, framed within within that um, the World Bank has developed a fragility conflict and violence strategy fcb strategy and um recognizing that we will be working in in the mena region not least but also globally uh, in more of this conflict setting and one of the uh, key things that we think needs to be addressed is of course water but also climate um and we are working with um countries to develop what we call uh, climate change and development reports and it's not only a report; it's a it, it's a it's a report laying out the 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 the, the landscape, so to say, for what what uh, to do. And it's uh, ba but based on that, and really dr drilling deep down into uh, you know into water, into land, 
um, environment and, and other sectors. We aim to uh, to increase the, the the level of activity that can contribute to climate action, uh, really moving up the so-called climate co-benefits that comes with all of our projects. We we always screen our projects to to make sure that they contribute to that, and and that the percentage of of uh, of contributions to um, address climate has gone up. It will go up even further. So that's one uh, specific. Uh, ways we're addressing it. Another one would be on, on transboundary waters, on regional cooperation over shared water resources and regional cooperation on water in general. We believe that uh, if countries are to uh, address the, um, the challenges that climate change uh, brings, uh, and that's from a development perspective, but you, 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 we're talking here also about the, the security perspective. Um, I think uh, that's where we can contribute, and we are working um, together on finding new approaches with the Mashrek countries uh, to try to advance this uh, agenda going forward. I'll stop uh, there and back to you. Thank you. Thank you. And to get on, again, having agreed on the importance of tackling the climate security nexus in the region, what will Ecopeace do to address nexus-specific components and help guide climate policy and action? So we're very much an activist organization. And uh, in the Green Blue Deal report that we uh, issued last year, uh, we've set out four pillars of uh, uh, policy actions that we're calling for and that, that um, we're, we're literally trying to create political will from our own countries, but also from the international community to support moving forward. The first is a water energy exchange. Um, uh, between our countries, you know, in a research, uh, uh, in a research that we uh, uh, completed with the support of the German government, um, we looked at the experience of Europe after World War II and the creation of a coal and steel agreement um, uh, that, that led to the European Union and uh, to you know, perhaps the longest period of stability that Europe has ever known. And we thought deeply, well, what's the coal and steel? that's relevant to the Eastern Mediterranean and MENA region at this time. And we concluded in this study that it's actually the harnessing of the sun and the sea and that there are comparative advantages of our different countries on how to advance that. And by creating interdependencies, by creating cooperation in how to mobilize um, those comparative advantages, we can also uh, uh, advance peace. Now, Jordan has the comparative advantage of vast desert areas, and it's able to produce and is already leading uh, uh, much of the region in producing renewable energy, particularly from solar, um, uh, to meet her own needs. And here, our advocacy is calling on Jordan to actually become a producer and seller of renewable energy to neighboring Palestine and Israel. Um, where uh, there's you know, uh, uh, a greater sh uh, shortage of land, either due to the, um, uh, the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians or um, uh, because of the demographic situation. On the other hand, um, the uh, Israeli and Palestinian Mediterranean coast holds the comparative advantage of producing renewable energy, uh, sorry, of producing desalinated water um, on the Mediterranean Sea in close proximity to all of the major population centers of our three countries, Israeli, Palestinian, and Jordanian. And in that way, if we can use renewable energy that Jordan sells to Israel and Palestine to produce desalinated water uh, that's produced on the Mediterranean and then sold east towards Jordan, we're able to uh, advance climate mitigation climate adaptation, region-wide water security, region-wide energy security to meet uh, the uh, climate targets um, that, that the region has set for itself. And no less importantly, for the very first time, have circumstances where each side has something to sell and each side has something to buy. I'm pleased to say that there's tremendous government interest in this effort today much pushed by the private sector who, who also see tremendous opportunities of investing. And I'm talking about billions of dollars of private sector investment to help create this climate resilience. 
Thank you. I appreciate the comparison to the European coal and steel community. That's very interesting. Thank you. Um, a quick reminder to the audience. Uh, this is going to be my last question to Sandra. Before I get there, though, do be sure to ask your question by leaving a comment wherever you are watching this in the live stream. So, uh, Sandra, over to you. What will CGIAR do to address the uh, climate uh, security nexus specific components and help guide policy and action? So moving forward, the CGIAR is looking to mainstream water and climate security. I say water, of course, because it comes to me automatically since I think it's so critical in this case. But water security across, sorry, climate security across its work portfolio. Okay, so we envision four avenues in this effort. Um, These being producing evidence for peace, informing policy for peace, programming for peace and using all of this to leverage finance for peace. So this is sort of the paradigm where we're operating in at the moment. Um, The CGIAR already has a broad spectrum of work to build on over, you know, uh, the history of of our work. So in my view, as I mentioned before, I believe our work in the water sector is of critical importance in the effort to intervene upon climate security risks in MENA. Um, Drought monitoring and early warning and forecasting, I mentioned that earlier, water, climate, migration, uh, nexus analysis, water productivity measures, water accounting systems, wastewater reuse, um, integrated food, water, uh, and energy uh, systems, uh, transboundary water management, because we're looking at a a region where two-thirds of all uh, resources are transboundary. So all of this, uh, these are going to be critical to be applied. They're being applied now to mitigate climate risk, and they're going to be critical to scale up going forward. So these technologies combined with collaborative and inclusive governance are an integral part of this effort to build resilience in MENA for the CGIAR. We need to continue to work closely with governments, communities, the private sector, and all other partners in the field in order to adapt these technological solutions to the needs of the stakeholders and to build up resilience in the face of uncertainty due to climate change. So we, um, as CGIAR researchers, we will aim to understand the sources of vulnerability, who's at risk, options for a way forward. Um, And when developing solutions, we'll be mindful that we need to be inclusive and conflict sensitive to understand who is being targeted in resilience building efforts, um, building resilience, that we're building resilience to the right risks, um, and that we're being mindful of um, the particular context in which we're operating. So our objective is to align evidence um, from the realms of water, land, and food system science, of course, with peace building efforts um, through evidence-based environmental, political, and social and economic solutions. But it's really important to note, this is, an, this is a highly integrative effort and we cannot do this alone. So that's why conversations like this are extremely helpful as we figure out the way forward. Uh, Thank you. Thank you all. I'm going to now turn to some questions from the audience that I'm uh, getting on my phone. Uh, So let me read this first question, uh, and it can go to each of you all, and you can take maybe a minute to answer so we can get through a few questions. So here it is. The Middle East and North Africa produces most of the world's fossil fuels, but these fuels are mostly consumed by Europe, USA, and China. As these countries transition towards green energy, what kind of climate security risks might confront the MENA region that would demand urgent attention? Uh, Let's maybe stay with uh, Sandra. That's a really hard question. Yeah, <laughs> I wish it, I had it wasn't an my question. Answer. I'm just reading it. <laughs> I wish I had an excellent answer. So in this transition, I mean, we, we know that this transition is going to have massive effects on the economies that are producing these resources. So um, what that's going to mean for these governments um, as they restructure their economies to a degree and figure out what is going to, what, what are going to be public spending priorities, what's going to happen in the jobs market. Um, there are all sorts of questions that are going to come up. So what is this going to mean um, in terms of climate security in particular, which I think is what the last part of this question was? Um, I mean, this obviously helps us towards our emissions reduction targets, but this 
fight is not just about that. This fight is about adaptation and all of the struggles that are that are in there. And so therefore also restructuring how we produce our energy and figuring out, uh, I mean, there's just a whole bundle of things. I, I, I hope that was somewhat helpful. That's yes. a large well, question did, for one answer. <laughs> well, one uh, Gidon, Gidon, do you want to take a, a stab at this question for a minute? Uh, absolutely. I, I think, uh, you know, building on what Sandy said, um, you know, the challenge here is to make sure that uh, the oil producing countries stop producing oil, but have sustainable incomes to replace. And, you know, given that you know, they all have vast desert areas, um, you know, we at Equipeace really invite the other uh, uh, oil producing countries, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, uh, you know, the Gulf states, um, to heavily in- invest in renewable energy and then export that renewable energy you know, west and east. Um, and let me give you an example. Um, you know, green hydrogen is one of the most exciting technologies currently being uh, developed, and it requires an enormous amount of renewable energy uh, to produce that hydrogen. Well, the green hydrogen that, that, that now needs to be produced in the Middle East instead of the fossil fuels can then be moved and mobilized not only to, to meet the energy needs of our region, but exported to Europe and Africa and, uh, and Asia and beyond. And we, we're starting to see some linkages. You know, Israel and Cyprus um, uh, uh, are proposing to build a gas pipeline that, that, that would uh, connect to mainland uh, uh, Greece and Europe. Well, we think that rather than, than building gas pipelines, let's put in the pipelines that can move green hydrogen. Let's connect um, our electricity grids from the, Medi- from the uh, Middle East that can be a major producer of renewables and link it um, uh, to uh, Europe to sell, as, as Morocco is doing in North Africa to Europe. Well, the Middle East can do that through the Eastern Mediterranean to Europe as well. Uh, great. Thanks. And, and Anders, do you want to take a stab at this? Yes, yes, uh, I'd be pleased to, but uh, I'm, I'm going to build on what uh, Gideon and uh, Sandy already said, and I think they said a lot. Um, just s- some brief additions here. I think we're already seeing in the region uh, some great uh, ideas and innovations um, looking at uh, you know, solar energy, etc., uh, at at a scale we haven't seen before, so I think this is these are promising developments uh, that that can that can, can then be used. But but it has to go alongside also with uh, with this uh, sort of gradual uh, diversification, so that uh, so that uh, the economies can uh, can be sustained. Uh, I think that's that's key. And and the, of course, yes, it's a climate security risk, but it's also an opportunity. Uh, it provides, and I think Gidon spoke to that, the opportunity to. Uh, to export a greener energy uh, to places where which we may not even have thought about uh, before. So I think that's the that that's the opportunity. So if you sort of flip it on its head. Thank you, uh, and uh, Gidon, I know I am reaching you in the depths of COP twenty six in the conference hall. So forgive me this next question about COP twenty seven, which is in Egypt next year, and this. Uh, viewer wants to know, Egypt is hosting COP27 next year. Do you think this will help the MENA region meet climate targets? And how might this also help build peace in the region? So it's a wonderful question. In fact, it looks like that COP27 and COP28 will actually be in the Middle East. So that that is the opportunity to uh, really focus on the needs of the Middle East to be more sustainable, to be more uh, 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 climate-focused, uh, uh, to make sure, and this is what at Civil Society uh, we will do, and, and certainly what at Equipeace we're calling for, um, uh, uh, to hold our governments uh, 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 to account that you know, it's, it's easy to make uh, commitments at, at events like we're seeing here in Glasgow in Cairo and perhaps in Abu Dhabi the year after, the civil society, um, uh, uh, NGOs from the Middle East are going to be really holding our own Middle East governments to account 
are they really advancing the required investments in both climate mitigation and climate adaptation? Are they focused only on the uh, national uh, efforts or are they looking more broadly to regional solutions that, as, as we've mentioned here, are critical both to climate security and to uh, uh, a long-term peace in our region? Does anyone else have any uh, thoughts on this question of the next two cops, Egypt, then Abu Dhabi, and their uh, intersection with our conversation today? If 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 I may, I mean, I, I think Gidon basically said it said it all. I think it's an opportunity um, to promote uh, and and sort of uh, catalyze further all the good things that are already happening in the region. Uh, so, so it's an opportunity to do that uh, with these, and and importantly, as as also Guillermo was saying, the opportunity to think regionally. I think that's the sort of peace building aspect that you were, uh, or the the, the the question ask the person asking the question was after. I think if you if uh, if the countries on, in the region can think more about this, not only in in the MENA region but broadly. Uh, that would be a, a key aspect of, of the building peace and the development, both of those two things. And uh, Sandra, I see you nodding your head vigorously. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that both Anders and Gidan have really hit the nail on the head. I mean, to, to host these events in the region, um, it, it means it, the, the governments that are hosting will be held to account. It means that we have to put our money where, the, where our mouths are, right? And we have to really be, uh, be honored by playing this role in the region to bring this discussion to the region um, and, and, and leverage it as an opportunity to come together as a region, like, like Anders said, and, and, and to build coalitions in a region that, let's be honest, the donor community may often look at the region in terms of conflict and fragility, and we've talked plenty about that today. But now that is the time to turn attention to other issues where the governments here can really champion the cause of, of, of mitigating, mitigating climate risk. Other, yeah. Uh, so actually staying with you, Sandra, uh, we have a question mm -hmm. from the audience. Climate and conflict risks often spill over national boundaries. So what needs to be prioritized for trans for transboundary policies and agreements to tackle both climate and security co-benefits? Uh, that's a that's a really wonderful question. You know, there are a lot of ways to answer that. Something that's been on my mind lately, um, and, and also because this is the middle of the COP, but looking at um, the uh, nationally determined contributions and the na uh, national adaptation plans and, and the commitments that governments are making uh, going forward to adapt to what's to come, um, to mitigate risk for their populations um, and so forth. A lot of this is, of course, I'm reading about what's happening in terms of um, strategic water investments and water policy and, and so forth. Um, but as I read these commitments, I wonder, gosh, okay, here are some great commitments, but they're within national boundaries, and we desperately need regional action. I mean, like I said, water is transboundary, you know, two-thirds of water resources are transboundary in the region. So if we're going to try to make changes and build resilience in countries um, to climate risk, to uh, variability and to all of the things that are being forecast for our future, these NDCs and NAPs need to uh, somehow bring us together uh, to work across boundaries and in very strategic ways. So I'm hoping that discussions forward about adaptation um, and all of these great strategies that have been published will move more in that uh, direction and that we can uh, have more strategic conversations in that area. Uh, thank you. I'll give someone else the opportunity to answer this question as well, uh, if anyone would like. Otherwise, we can move on. Yeah, go ahead, Gideon. Gideon. So, so, so very much building on what Sandy said. I, I mean, I think we're, we're actually, ha we have a failure um, in, the, in the UN process that we're advancing. The, the national plans are critical, but 
in every national plan, there needs to be a clear commitment to regional endeavors because the climate crisis doesn't you know, stop at a border. It doesn't hit one country. It, you know, the, the, the climate crisis is particular to the region. The, the MENA region is a hotspot. And if in our reporting, in, in the strategies that each one of our MENA countries are developing, if we're not um, uh, you know, uh, defining, if we're not strategizing how we're going to uh, 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 you know, reach these targets and, and, and meet our challenges in a regional fashion, then we're actually missing opportunities. And we can't afford to be missing opportunities in the midst of the climate crisis that in MENA we're already experiencing today. Uh, thank you. And uh, we just have two minutes left uh, and we have a kind of a joint question uh, for both Anders and Sandra. Uh, what, um, what is the best possible way to integrate science knowledge from CGIAR's work with uh, the fragility, conflict, and violence strategies at the World Bank and similar frameworks? Basically, how can the World Bank and CGIAR scientists and other areas of CGIAR work more closely together in this area? Uh, I guess we'll, we'll start with Sandra, then finish with Anders. Um, I would say tongue in cheek. Let's have a Zoom meeting, but you no, know, honestly, this is it right there. <laughs> right here's the beginning. Um, no, it's it, this is exactly it. We need to actually come together in a very creative space to come across, you know, to to make this bridge because we're coming from different paradigms of how we do research, how we inform action, how we develop policy, and what are our priorities. Um, when when we when we do any of the analytical work we do um, uh, to inform next steps. So yeah, we need to put our our heads together. I want. Oh, did she just drop? Uh, we just lost Sandra, but uh, that's okay. We're running low on time anyway. Anders, why don't you pick it up from there? Sure, absolutely. I I uh, it's a great question. I am hoping that we are already um, building on all the great uh, science that uh, uh, the CGIR institutions are uh, uh, producing. And I think we are. I think, I think uh, at least part of our FCB strategy is informed by that. We often work at, in different projects, uh, but also in analytical work together with uh, institutions such as uh, International Water Management Institute, which is one of the uh, of the CGIR institutions, and we look really to the scientific community uh, to help us uh, to to push the boundaries. As we look to civil society as well, uh, you know, to push us and others in the right direction. So I think that's where where we would look uh, look to uh, CGIR institutes uh, to to advance this important agenda. Uh, well, thank you all for your time today. Thank you all who are watching the live stream. Again, this was recorded as a live taping of the Global Dispatches podcast. You can find the podcast uh, wherever you listen to them, just by searching for it. Uh, and now let me turn for closing remarks to Michael Baum, Acting Director, General Research, International Center for Agriculture Research in Dry Areas with CGIAR. Uh, and Michael, over to you for some final remarks. Thank you. So it was a very rich discussion. It's impossible for me to uh, to to put it all together, but uh, just a few th <clears throat> just a few thoughts. You know, uh, the dry lands, <clears throat> uh, especially in in uh, Mena in the middle uh, uh, Middle East, um, <clears throat> uh, there are uh, five hundred million people living living around there, and uh, um, is faced with uh, immense challenges. We have heard uh, from from uh, from the different colleagues. And uh, um, um, you know, starting with water, the the the, the um, <clears throat> um, climate security, uh, uh, many of the aspects, and uh, um, and uh, as uh, Gideon uh, <coughs> highlighted, um, so the actual the actual figures on uh, what's happening in the eastern eastern Mediterranean Sea, with uh, uh, two degrees <coughs> already a two degrees in increase, uh, temperature of thirty two degrees. Um, which is really alarming, and some of the uh, uh, the prediction is uh, that uh, uh, um, you know <clears throat> the MENA is a, a climate hotspot, and, and uh, till the end of the century we might expect even four degrees uh, a temperature increase, which with all the implications for uh, it has on the livelihoods and uh, the farming systems and 
<laughs> and so on. Um, we have heard we have heard about uh, the possible uh, collaborations around the Jordan River and uh, about uh, uh, the Nile, the, the Nile, where uh, the World Bank <laughs> is uh, is uh, I involved, and uh, which is which is a little bit uh, encouraging, and uh, um, <clears throat> and also uh, Gideon was uh, referring to the uh, was referring to the. Uh, um, um, the uh, um, the coal uh, steel agreement <coughs> that uh, um, that maybe uh, uh, after the second world war uh, led uh, led uh, to the to the rise of uh, the European Union and uh, uh, I think it's important to think about uh, similar deals uh, in the Middle East that brings that brings uh, um, uh, parties together and uh, to work together um, I'm a bit optimistic <coughs> because uh, uh, we are in the last in the last year of a phase in the CGIAR, uh, and we are preparing for a new phase where we look into uh, new programs, and uh, uh, it's um, um, in a, in a way. Uh, so uh, we are in the CG, CG centers. Uh, we are partners, but uh, sometimes we are also competing. And uh, <clears throat> but this new phase is uh, the, the new one CGIAR is uh, uh, really uh, bringing a lot of the centers together. And uh, for instance, we are building at the moment a, a program on uh, uh, a regional integrated initiative on Siwana, where uh, eight CGR centers that work in in MENA uh, actually uh, <coughs> putting putting their programs together. Uh, centers have different expertise, and they all brought together to build uh, an integrated program, starting from, uh, uh, for instance, Sendra is part of this one. Uh, um, uh, from 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 expertise in water accounting and and, and water strategies, uh, uh, plant breeders, uh, policy dimensions, um, so uh, and, and 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 many more, and uh, um, so building uh, uh, such programs uh, for the future make me a, a little bit optimistic that uh, that uh, um, even <clears throat> even uh, um, with. Uh, the scenarios that are not uh, uh, the, the climate change scenario that are not so optimistic for MENA, so uh, we might might find solution solutions and uh, um, and and uh, you know to build uh, to, to build uh, uh, systems that uh, that are productive for the future. I like to also to mention um, <clears throat> um, you know one strength that the Middle East uh, really has. Um, you know, we have two or three Vavilovian centers of uh, genetic diversity in the Middle East, in the Fertile Crescent, and uh, um, uh, many of our uh, plant, animal, forest, fish uh, uh, species uh, originated from the Middle East and uh, over millions uh, of years. So plant genetic resources, animal genetic resources, forest genetic resources are there. And uh, um, we can make much, much better use of, the, of those resources uh, to build uh, 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 production systems and food systems for the future. And uh, um, um, and as as uh, these uh, uh, wild relatives have lived through uh, uh, hundred thousand or millions of years, so they all they also have seen uh, times of uh, climate change and, and uh, uh, warmer climates. So uh, that we are optimistic that to find uh, the real genes or the allele combinations uh, to develop uh, um, to develop uh, the uh, the plant species and the production systems uh, for the future, and uh, um, so <clears throat> I'm, I'm I'm very uh, optimistic. I mean to uh, be able to work with uh, colleagues uh, from the other uh, CG centers to put uh, programs together that uh, that. Uh, um, Take care of uh, uh, the expertise in the region, but also of the opportunities. Uh, um, the CG has been in the region for 50 years. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's quite a bit of the donor community that trusts into the CG and that builds uh, programs together with the CG. Uh, if, uh, uh, for instance, uh, um, we are <clears throat> working together with the World Bank uh, to, to develop a climate smart uh, value chain in a number of countries, in Morocco, in Iraq, in, in in, uh, in Afghanistan, um, um, <clears throat> World Bank and and, and other uh, organizations are a great partner to uh, to uh, to look uh, more closely into uh, uh, you know the programs that are needed for, for for the Middle East in order to face the challenges uh, the challenges uh, for the future.
Um, that's in a nutshell uh, a little bit of an outlook, ho hopefully a, a bit of an optimistic outlook uh, within uh, within uh, um, the climate change uh, predictions for, for the Middle East. And uh, um, yeah. I would uh, thank you for having me on the program. And uh, I hope I could uh, give some thoughts for um, <coughs> some positive thoughts at an outlook.